Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Washington Post columnist and popular past guest, J.J. McCullough. We previously spoke in May, but didn't get around to discussing the Conservative Party leadership race. I'm grateful to have him back to discuss the campaign and its various dynamics in the lead-up to next month's vote. J.J., once again, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me. Last time you were on the podcast, we discussed your worldview and some big-picture questions about Canadian democracy and society. Today, I'm proposing something a bit different, uh, what Jonah Goldberg likes to call rank punditry. I thought that it was timely to discuss all things conservative leadership race now that we're finally moving towards the big day. And it seems like a good place to start is the energy around Pierre Polyev's campaign. You have a theory that Polyev, either by intention or stance, is giving conservatives precisely what they want in a party leader. Help me and our listeners understand your point. How, in your view, is Polyev the right man for the current political moment? Well, I think Polyev has a mix of style and substance that is just, you know, correct for the moment. He is very much sort of delivering what I think the base of the party wants. You know, with the last two leaders of the party, with Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole, there was a bit of a, you know, gritting your teeth and holding your nose and, you know, voting in that kind of way, voting in a begrudging sort of way, in a way that was mostly uh, animated by an antipathy for Justin Trudeau. With Pierre Polyevra, for the first time, I think you have a leader that people are actually excited to vote affirmatively for. And that is something that is quite unique. And is it is kind of, I suppose, a testament to sort of how low, uh, you know, sort of expectations have gotten in the Conservative Party and in the Conservative base in recent years, that just having a leader who people like is considered this remarkable phenomenon. That the fact that like people are enthusiastically showing up to his rallies and taking pictures with him and, you know, tweeting in favor of him and posting memes in favor of him, like this kind of stuff, the kind of what you would think is sort of like baseline of what support for a candidate should look like is now being treated as a kind of remarkable phenomenon. And it's because, you know, what does he do? Well, you know, he goes after Trudeau in a very prickly, very uh, cold and calculating and sometimes even borderline kind of cruel prosecutorial way, which the base likes. The base likes to see Justin Trudeau held accountable for his scandals and his misstatements and, you know, just, I think, what is perceived as being sort of the general incompetence of the government. And, you know, he also affirmatively is also pushing forward an activist agenda that is, you know, pro-liberty and small government and going after, you know, the gatekeepers, which is a brilliant kind of slogan, because it serves as a kind of shorthand for this kind of constellation 
of sort of statist actors in the Canadian system that conservatives have always detested, whether that's, you know, the CBC or the CRTC or, you know, uh, now we're seeing sort of the Bank of Canada starting to fulfill that role. And there's always sort of been a, a sort of faction of the conservative base that has been pretty skeptical of, of the Bank of Canada. So I don't know. He just seems like he's doing what on the one hand is a pretty masterful sort of political campaign, but on the other hand is also a kind of, I think, sort of bare minimum of what a successful candidate for prime minister should be able to do, which is appeal to his own party. Let's continue discussing the different candidates. Jean Charest's campaign seems to have bet on the idea that electability would be an overriding calculus on the part of conservative members. His argument about electability has at times been aided by public polling, which seems to show that a Charest-led conservative party would on the margins, outperform a Polyev-led one? Maybe a two-part question. One, what did Sheree and his team miss in their assumptions about the power of electability? And two, do you even accept the premise that Sheree is more electable than Polyev in the context of a general election campaign? It's it's difficult. And I mean, I do think that that is the best argument that the Sheree people have in their favor is the sort of the electability argument. I mean, I do think, though, that, again, this is, is it's not really an affirmative case for Sheree. It's kind of a case against Polyev and what he is sort of seen as embodying. I really do reject the premise fundamentally that people really kind of like on some level know or care who Sheree is or are excited by him and the promise of what he is. I think that this is, I think, a classic example of where I think the pundit class is a little bit out of touch with what your average Canadian on the street thinks. You know, I think that to most Canadians, Jean Charest is a very marginal, very sort of obscure figure in Canadian, in modern sort of Canadian political history. You know, the premier of Quebec is not necessarily a top of mind political figure, I think, for most Canadians, let alone the man who was head of the progressive conservative party like 30 years ago. Right. So the Sheree campaign has always been based on a sort of false premise, which is that he is this sort of beloved elder statesman who is coming out of retirement and is sort of like mobilizing a grateful nation in his in his favor. But, you know, that said, it is obviously the case as well that Polyevra does come off, you know, as much as he animates the base, he does come off as a very rigid partisan. He comes off ideological in a way that I think the previous two leaders did not. And because he is so combative, he comes off as, I think, a very kind of partisan figure, a very polarizing figure, and in a similar way that, frankly, Stephen Harper did. But that being said, we do know that Stephen Harper managed to win three back-to-back terms despite constantly facing an uphill battle that was not unlike the criticism that was leveled at, at, at Pierre, which is that, you know, he is too polarizing. He is too much a man of sort of the hard, sort of cruel ideological right. And I think the one other sort of point that I would make, though, is that it is always important to remember, and Sean, you've made this argument yourself as well, is that the Conservative Party of Canada does not win by being a 50% plus one uh, proposition. And that might be a bad thing in sort of the grand scheme of things. But this is also just the sort of the harsh reality of the Canadian political system is that you do not need to mobilize a majority in your favor to in order to even win a majority government. Basically, the standard is 40%. And can Pierre Paul ever compile a 40% coalition? I don't think that that is that unreasonable to assume because it's just not that high of a bar once you sort of get into the rough and tumble of a, of a campaign, once you're sort of making the persuasive case for yourself to a sort of general audience who perhaps haven't been following the conservative leadership race all that closely. Once, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau has had a couple more years to kind of grate on the Canadian public. 
So I, I think that sort of any attempt to kind of determine how the next election will go this early in the game is, is premature as it always is. I suppose the last candidate worth talking about is Leslie and Lewis, who I must admit, JJ, surprised me more than any other candidate in the sense that I anticipated that her anti-abortion politics would perform well amongst the conservative membership, which is far more pro-life than the general public, and in the race in which she had a completely open field, given that all the other candidates are pro-choice. Yet Lewis has run a different campaign than she did last time. Her message has been less a conventional social conservative one, and more the kind of very online conservative populism focused on vaccine mandates, the World Economic Forum, and so on. Uh, Again, let me ask a two-part question. One, why do you think the Lewis campaign has de-emphasized abortion and other social conservative priorities? And two, do you think that it was a mistake? My impression that I've had of of Leslie Lewis, and I don't want to be sort of too uncharitable about this, is that that she is someone who is very much sort of you know, her priorities are sort of determined by the kind of people who are within her orbit at any given time. And so I think that initially, when she first burst onto the scene, the people within her orbit, the sort of the people that sort of made up her her staff and her handlers and so forth, were all pulled from the sort of the evangelical pro-life sort of professionalized movement such as it exists in Canada. And as a, as a result, she very much sort of reflected that agenda. During the campaign, she kind of caught fire in a kind of broader way, because I think in those days she was seen when she was running against uh, Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay, she was sort of seen as like the fresh, bold, anti-establishment choice, the sort of the populist choice. And it wasn't all just about her willingness to break the abortion taboo, although I do think that that's kind of served as a proxy for some some sort of larger, uh, some larger things. But I think that she sort of caught fire as kind of the anti-establishment, the the outsider candidate in the context of a race that was sort of seen as being between two kind of rather bland sort of centrist choices. And I think that in the aftermath of that, she sort of attracted a new kind of crowd, right? She attracted new people into her orbit who I think were more populist, more sort of generally kind of of, of the sort of the anti-establishment right. And I just kind of think that those people in general were somewhat less interested in abortion as the sort of defining cause. They sort of got more animated by, by COVID uh, era politics and the truckers and sort of things of that sort. And so I think that she is a canny enough politician to kind of sense the direction that the wind is blowing and sort of readapt herself towards a new audience, towards sort of new argument that she's hearing, perhaps for the first time, because let's not forget, she's not a very experienced politician. And, uh, you know, as someone who's interviewed her before, again, without being too uncharitable, she didn't strike me as somebody that necessarily had a great deal of depth of thought about a lot of sort of contemporary Canadian political debates, which to me suggests that she is a somewhat suggestible personality type. And I think sort of reflects again, like a kind of uh, sort of savviness to understand that the true energy on the right in this country is not necessarily on the uh, sort of the social conservative cause. It's on the sort of the broader kind of anti-establishment populist cause as embodied by things like the uh, views of the World Economic Forum and, you know, anti-vaccine sort of advocacy and that sort of thing. So, but anyway, I guess the other point I would make is just that Pierre Polyevra is basically owning that field right now. So she didn't make an irrational assessment that this was sort of the, the way to run in, 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 you know, the year 2022. The problem just is, is that I think that Pierre Polyevra is just seen as a so much more kind of authentic champion. Whereas I think, and, you know, she, she's had a number of sort of bumbling, uh, 
media interviews in which I think it is quite clear that, you know, as once was said of Mitt Romney, you know, she sort of speaks this flavor of conservatism as a second language. JJ, we'll come back to the question of the role and influence of social conservatives in this race. But for now, I want to zoom out and talk about the race itself. One of Polyev's main arguments is that the idea of freedom unites the different conservative factions, that even social conservatives respond to a message of freedom because they feel like government encroachment on their ability to express their religious values in the public square or raise their kids how they want or whatever is under threat. Do you want to talk a bit about Polyev's campaign message of freedom? And do you think that he needs to recalibrate it all if he becomes leader? Or do you think that freedom is a message that has resonance beyond the conservative party? Well, in response to the latter, I definitely think that, yes, this is a message that has some resonance beyond just the conservative base. I think that actually what Paul Ever has been quite savvy at doing is sort of making the question of freedom a question that is relevant in a kind of middle class sort of material sense. You know, like oftentimes when conservatives and sort of libertarians talk about freedom, they talk about it in this very sort of high-minded way that it becomes very abstract and very sort of philosophical. But if you're talking about freedom in a way where it's like, do you have the freedom to, you know, buy an affordable cell phone plan? Or is that freedom being obstructed because there is, quote unquote, gatekeepers, you know, in the sense of a sort of telecom oligopoly that is sort of preventing you to exercise that freedom? Do you have the, you know, the freedom to to buy what you want? You know, the issue that's very sort of near and dear to my heart, Bill C-11, you know, the liberal government's attempt to sort of regulate YouTube. You know, this issue I have found to be tremendously resonant with a lot of people who are not normally very politically active, a lot of young people in particular, because that. Uh, manifestation of a freedom agenda matters to them, right? Like the idea that do I have the freedom to watch whatever I want on YouTube or is the gatekeeper in the sense of the CRTC going to get in the way and say, no, that's not patriotic enough. You need to watch this show and that show and this amount of Canadian content and and so forth. You know, it's sometimes this goes in, in weird directions that you or I might not be as partial to. You know, do we want the freedom to buy, you know, cryptocurrency, for instance? Like, that's the sort of freedom argument that appeals to a certain set. Again, a set that might not ordinarily be as invested in, in sort of the, the sort of the political scene. You know, do you have the freedom? There's also like these kind of uh, more sort of affirmative questions. Like, do you have the freedom to buy a, an affordable house, right? almost a kind of sort of more sort of left-wing kind of progressive framing, right? The idea that you have a freedom to have something or obtain something or, an, or, or freedom to opt into a certain style of, of living or a certain lifestyle. So I think all of these sort of ways of sort of conceptualizing freedom and making freedom sort of applicable and practical and relevant to middle-class lives, I think that that is really something that we haven't really sort of seen in Canadian politics before and is is something that I think provides a kind of refreshing energy that I think is powering a lot of, uh, of Polyevra's uh, sort of movement, such as it is. If we're talking about overriding messages and ideas, one thing that struck me about the Shrey campaign and was partly reflected in some of Tasha Kiernan's comments on a recent episode of High Hub Dialogues is a view about Canadian conservatism as a set of regional sensibilities, that there are, for lack of a better term, hardcore conservatives in the West, business conservative types in central Canada, Quebec nationalists, and then red Tories in Atlantic Canada. I don't know what you think. I'd, I'd be interested in your views because my sense is that that conception of conservatism may have been right at some point, but it just isn't right today. That there are indeed big differences between 
conservatives and non-conservatives on issues, but conservatives themselves from coast to coast are pretty similar. And the only real difference is the number of conservatives in different regions as opposed to their worldview. Yes, no, I, I agree with that entirely. And I, I would also sort of say that there's kind of a generational divide. And I think you brought this up in, in, in your interview with Tasha, and I think that is probably in some ways more relevant. You know, this idea that there's all these different tribes and they're all very geographic and regional and based in these historic traditions, you know, it's a very sort of like romantic, you know, uh, history book, you know, undergrad poli-sci 101 kind of view of of, uh, of Canadian politics. But I do think it is 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 quite dated in a lot of ways. And you know, the internet has had a very flattening effect in, in many respects. You know, the internet has been a tremendously democratic uh, sort of presence in our politics. I think it has made politics much less regional and in some ways much kind of more ideological. And also just I think that uh, as communication sort of expands, people just don't necessarily think about their political priorities in a narrowly kind of regional way. They think of it in a kind of like broader uh, you know, if not necessarily ideological or philosophical way, but then, you know, a sort of like class kind of based way, you know, you think of it in terms of your, your priorities and the phase of life that you're in and that kind of thing. And, uh, whereas I, I do think that rather than the, you know, these kind of like, is it a red Tory thing? Is it a populist Western conservative thing? I, I do think that, like I said before, there's a certain generational divide where, it's kind of remarkable, actually, that there is a sort of younger generation of conservatives that I think have a little bit more, are a little bit more inclined to the kind of burn it all down kind of mentality, who are like more inclined to sort of see radical change and a radical sort of upsetting of sort of the, the Canadian system's apple cart, such as it is. And then you do have some like older conservatives who I think are a little bit more temperamentally uh, pro-status quo, in part because they've probably benefited from the status quo a lot more than some young people have. So I do think that, say, like Jean Charest is very much, I think, the candidate of that kind of older, nostalgic view of, you know, the conservatives or the conservative party or whatever, which I think tends to be, you know, much more, like, much more anti-American, much more sort of hostile towards anything that sort of reeks of kind of like traditional American style right wing ideology. And I think that that is kind of what is powering it much more than this like deeply understood, deeply felt alternative historical philosophy of what it means to be conservative. So I don't know. I'm just uh, as a person, I tend to be pretty resistant to arguments that just seem a little too bound up in, in sort of sentimentality. And I think that some of these arguments, these grand theories of all the different tribes of the conservative family are a little overstated, in part because it seems relatively obvious to me that uh, Pierre Polyevre is going to win this race quite easily. Right. Like he, in many senses, is the establishment candidate. He is the unifying candidate. So I think that we might need to sort of retire some of these, in many cases, like 20 year old theories about how the Conservative Party works that weren't even terribly accurate, even at the time of the Conservative Party's merger. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. What do you make of recent talk in the media about the need for the Conservative Party to shift to the center to reach so-called blue liberals? Does that sound like a viable path to you? 
isn't a likely consequence the bleeding of support to the People's Party in a way that doesn't leave the Conservative Party better off in net terms? Yeah. And I mean, I think that some of the polling does suggest that, that like Polly Everett is the best candidate to uh, sort of get the PPC voters back into the into the fold, so to speak, because I do think that the way he talks about freedom and just his general sort of vibe in general is much closer to that which attracted some people to uh, Maxime Bernier, right? He has that same sort of like edge and kind of anti-establishment and sort of like, you know, bitter hatred of, of Trudeau and things like lockdowns and all of that, that kind of, uh, you know, gets the same sort of people energized and not not unlike uh, what uh, Leslie Lewis did as well, right? So these people, there can only be one sort of champion of that lane at any given time. And if it's not Pierre, then I think it's logical to assume it will continue to be uh, Bernier, at least for a certain uh, sort of committed minority. Now, the problem with the sort of the idea of moving to the center, I think there's sort of like two sort of points to that is that it has to, I think, be articulated a little bit more specifically. And Sean, I feel like you've been relatively good at sort of holding people accountable to this, right? Like, what does that mean exactly? Like, is it just that Polly Ever is kind of too nasty or too mean or that his personality kind of tweaks people the wrong way? Or are there specific issues that you can point to that he's associated with and say, no, don't do that? Because in theory, and I think you've also mentioned this before, right? Polly Everett is not like the hard right Christian, you know, candidate, right? Like he's not running on the sort of platform that is supposedly sort of so alienating to the kind of moderate, sensible, you know, middle class voters, right? He is running on the kind of thing that sort of the moderate, sensible middle class voters always claim that they want, which is primarily a kind of like fiscally conservative platform, not a socially conservative platform. In fact, if anything, he's running on like the most explicitly kind of uh, fiscally conservative platform in the sense when you look at how much sort of whaling he does about debt and deficits and taxes and regulation and all of this kind of stuff, right? Now, the other sort of side, so like if, if that stuff is like, what part about that is bad? What part about that is turning off the sort of gettable middle uh, middle of the road voters? Um, the second thing I would say, though, is that, and this is something that frustrates me quite a bit, is that a lot of the people that make these arguments, I feel have never really grappled with O'Toole's defeat, right? Like O'Toole was the case study of this style of conservative, right? Like he ran on what was sort of openly acknowledged. Uh, there was some very famous headline in the Globe and Mail, I believe, that described him as the most liberal conservative that, you know, the party has ever put forward, right? He ran on an exceedingly moderate platform and he was an exceedingly moderate man in terms of his temperament and personality. And it didn't work. In fact, he did worse than Andrew Scheer in both in terms of their share of the popular vote and the seat count. And I just feel like this is the great unexamined uh, sort of event in modern Canadian politics. And I think it's just because a lot of people are just so invested in this theory, which I think was very easy to, you know, put forth during the Harper years, during the Shear years. And then it was ultimately tested. You know, the dog finally caught the car. And it didn't work. And then what? Like, do you recalibrate your entire worldview or do you just kind of block it out through sort of cognitive dissonance, right? And I feel like that the latter is unfortunately what sort of happened. I think that, you know, Polly Everett may not win. The, he might not be the next prime minister. But I think it is very clear that he, he and his style of politics has at least earned a chance, you know? And I think that's why when you look beyond the kind of sort of the dissident kind of moderate conservative, older conservative establishment, conservative, whatever you want to call it, this sort of 
faction that's pushing for Sheree, very small minority faction, we should always say, you know, outside of that faction, it is very clear that Polly Edward has been the unifying candidate. And I think it's because most conservatives are willing to give it a try. They're willing to sort of say, we've tried, we've tried uh, moderate and uh, it didn't work. You know, we tried sort of the continuity sort of candidate, which I think was pretty much what Sheer was, and that didn't work. And we tried, frankly, you know, Harper a, a fourth time, and that didn't work either. So I think Polly Everett has a bit of sort of newness to him, a bit of freshness to him, a new approach, and an approach that is perhaps, you know, a little bit more leaning into the base's impulses. But, you know, that's, that is unto itself something that hasn't been tried in a while. So... Let's come back to the current state of the social conservative movement and its influence in Canadian politics. As I mentioned earlier, JJ, I'm struck that the trading off of traditional issues for more fringe populist stuff has not only harmed its credibility, but it's likely come at the expense of actually influencing the campaign because Polyev and even Charest, to an extent, can match social conservatives on WEF or vaccines or whatever and ultimately not have to address issues like abortion rights. Is this campaign, in effect, an expression of the diminished influence of social conservatives in conservative politics? It's a good question. And I guess it kind of, I'd say that it's sort of like something that I've sort of wondered about during the course of this campaign and sort of Pierre's sort of emergence as what seems to be sort of the social conservatives choice is to the extent to which like is social conservatism an agenda or is it just kind of a temperament as well? Like is being a social conservative, like is this just becoming a kind of proxy for just being a sort of populist kind of guy in general? And there's been a lot of sort of conversation about this in America in particular, right? Like Trump has always enjoyed tremendous support from evangelical Christians, right? But the evangelical churches have become more politicized during this. So it's some, it becomes harder to kind of like tell where one ends and one begins, you know? A lot of the evangelical churches in the U.S. are now delivering sermons that are just like explicitly sort of Republican talking points about how bad Biden is and how bad the Democrats are and why we should all support Trump and da-da-da-da-da. You know, in America, the abortion issue, I think, is sort of like the one remaining very clearly tangible Christian-inspired sort of issue that is used as a litmus test for the credibility of a Republican politician. You know, in Canada, we don't have that. I think, obviously, oh, I shouldn't even say obviously, but I, I do think it is becoming increasingly apparent that even a lot of sort of evangelicals in this country have kind of quietly resigned themselves to the idea that abortion is not going to be relitigated through the Canadian political process. You know, I think that, you know, the debate goes on in sort of back rooms and back channels in this country and sort of in intellectual circles. But I think that there's kind of a resignation to the idea that it's not going to be adjudicated through the sort of the conventional Canadian parliamentary process anytime soon. So as a result, you know, that sort of socially conservative temperament gets channeled into other forms of political activism, which I think sort of goes into what you were saying earlier, this kind of like broad freedom agenda, you know, just the kind of idea that the government, the state, you know, the sort of liberal elites and the progressives in Ottawa and so forth, like clearly do not like social conservatives. Therefore, like social conservatives kind of have a common enemy alongside, you know, libertarians and other sort of free markets, you know, anti-establishment conservative types of a secular sort, and that they're all sort of unified in basically just in opposition to a common enemy. And I think that that's a kind of coalition politics that, you know, is in the conservatives' favor. It's, it's difficult, though, at some point, because, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this as well, is, is sort of coalition politics 
is often not pretty, right? Like you kind of realize who you're in a coalition with and who you have to apologize for and make excuses for in order to get that magic number, you know, if it's 40% in Canada or whatever, who do you have to sort of link arms with? And I think that that is sort of like the most sort of substantial criticism that one can make of Polyever, right? Which is that some of his coalition building is distasteful. Like he has welcomed in, I think, the more conspiratorial sort of crankish set, you know, in his effort to bring in the PPC people and make them part of his coalition, right? That's distasteful to a lot of people who regard conspiracy theorists as, you know, ignorant and even potentially sort of dangerous people. But again, like this is just kind of on some level how the political game is played. And that I think the sort of ruthlessness of of Polyevra's sort of personality comes through in the sense that he knows what it takes to win. And on some level, that even becomes, you know, the Trump analogies are kind of overdone, but there is a kind of like Trumpy canniness in that, in the willingness to make allegiances with who need with who you need to make allegiances with in order to get to that to that finish line. And, you know, maybe not, uh, you know, sort of uh, be as inclined to uh, turn the guns on your own side unless it is absolutely necessary. And I think the conservatives are not in a place where they should be, you know, where it makes sense for them to be picking fights with the, you know, whoever is 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 uh, in their tent. Let me ask a question that's related but separate from the Conservative Party leadership race. What, if anything, should we make of the fact that Jason Kenney will soon be out as Alberta Premier and Doug Ford has been reelected with increased support? Can one reach any generalized conclusions about what it says about Canadian conservative politics? I mean, I suppose what it says on some level is that, like, image matters a great deal, you know? Uh, Kenny, I think, by any sort of stretch, is a much more cerebral, intellectual person than Ford is. Kenny understands conservatism, understands the conservative movement. You know, I'm sure that, uh, you know, you and him could have a great conversation about just any sort of conservative intellectual thing under the sun and conservative history and philosophy and, you know, talk about the, the great movements in the 70s and 80s and so forth. And he'd be able to keep up, no question. I think actually you once sort of said that he was sort of the only politician that we can sort of think of in, in sort of the contemporary sort of Canadian political scene who would be able to sort of hold his own in a sort of American political context, right? Like that his his bona fides and his sort of um, sort of education, his literacy in sort of the conservative tradition is is unparalleled. You know, probably only Prime Minister Harper himself would sort of be up there. Uh, Ford is nothing of that sort, but Ford comes off as a kind of like blue collar, you know, aw shucks, you know, man of the people kind of guy. He's very unvarnished. He speaks in a kind of blunt way. And, they, you know, there's a sort of sense that he's kind of on your side. Whereas Kenny, despite all of his intellectual uh, sort of credentials, or perhaps because of them, he kind of comes off as a bit more of a sort of stiff and awkward and you know, somewhat sort of elitist and even sort of condescending figure in a way that I think has turned off a lot of people. And so you can get into the sense where you can get into the situation where Kenny can have COVID policies that are much milder than Doug Ford's, but they still breed a kind of resentment in the conservative base of Alberta in the way that Ford didn't in, in, with his electorate in Ontario. Just because, you know, Ford has a kind of credibility of style and persona that people just appreciate more. I mean, this is not a perfect answer. And I feel like that there's some complexities to this that, you know, uh, people like you and me that maybe want to look at the world through a kind of overly ideological lens maybe miss a little bit. But 
because on some level it is a little bit astonishing that Ford has been able to sort of coast through as easily as he did, you know, that he didn't sort of hemorrhage conservatives in any sort of real way. You know, that the attempts to sort of fight him from the right kind of went nowhere, even though, as I said, his COVID policies were a lot more draconian. And he would actually go on television and brag that he had the strictest COVID policies in all of North America. You know, you can say what you want about COVID policies and how extreme or how moderate they should be. But I think bragging about something like that is not textbook conservatism by any definition. And just the fact that he nevertheless was able to hold his coalition together and in fact even expand upon it is 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 difficult. And and you do wonder, like, is it all just vibes? Is it all just that like he comes off as the kind of blue-collar man's man and people want that in their politicians? I don't know. It's it's uh, but it's a very good question to uh to to uh, to ask. Well, let me take that up, assuming that Pierre Polyev will indeed be conservative party leader um come september 10th are there any lessons or insights to draw uh from the ford government's uh success in ontario as a poly led national party prepares for an election in 2025 mm, that's a good question as well because like you can imagine that polyevra you know there is a bit of awkwardness to him as as well you know he is a sort of slick professional politician and you know, maybe that will come back to haunt him in, in some regard. You know, if people make the argument that he is kind of a phony, that could maybe stick. You know, if, if the parties of the left sort of argue that, you know, he claims that he's on your side, but, you know, he's the career politician who's made all this money and, you know, he's never had a real job or whatever. Right. Like that, that kind of stuff might be able to stick. And that if if Paul ever comes off as sort of too rehearsed and too. Uh, kind of mechanical in a way that was sort of like the uh, the infamous uh, Marco Rubio uh, encounter in that debate that he had with with Donald Trump, you know, where, uh, you know, Rubio sort of defaults to just saying these kind of very tightly scripted, you know, crowd pleasing lines, but, you know, they no longer start to resonate after a while because they start to be seen as sort of too repetitive and sort of too polished. But ultimately, you know, Pierre is who he is and Ford is who he is. And you kind of have to be authentic to your, your true personality. There's a degree to which you can't get away from that. But I think the bigger question is, is does Pierre come off as more authentic than, than Trudeau does? And I think that at this point, you know, after running for three terms, you know, after having been in power for a decade, and this is very much what Harper experienced, there comes a point at which people are just kind of sick of you. You know, you just, they're tired of seeing your face. They're tired of hearing your voice. You just become grating and, and, and exhausting, and people are much less willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. And I think that in that sense, Pierre could be sort of seen as analogous to Ford in the sense that I think that that kind of exhaustion was very much what people felt about Premier Wynne near the end of her reign. They were just done with that party. They were done with her. They were done with that whole scene. You know, Ford wasn't perfect by any stretch, but he was fresh and, you know, seemed to have a somewhat clear vision of what he wanted to do with government and, you know, why not give him a try? So I think that that's, you know, as much as I said earlier, Pierre is somebody that I think conservatives will be very eagerly voting affirmatively for. I do think that the swing voters, ultimately, the big assumption would be that in the next election, they'll be primarily voting against Trudeau. And that will be the case that uh, Polly Ever will have to make. That's a great segue to my final question. One of the common discussions about the Polyev campaign 
is will some of the hard edges um, that are that resonate so much with conservative voters will they um, undermine support from swing voters that the party will ultimately need across the country, but particularly in parts of the GTA, uh, where of course higher levels of support are so crucial to ultimately forming government. I have this hypothesis I'd like to put to you that Pierre's credibility amongst conservatives may kind of counterintuitively give him more flexibility to shift on on different issues um, than, say, Aaron O'Toole did. What do you think about that hypothesis and the prospect that we'll see something of a moderation from Pierre Polyev in the lead up to the next election? Yeah, I, I heard you sort of articulate this on on one of the on one of your roundtable podcasts, and I thought it was a it was a good observation, right? Which is it's the kind of Nixon goes to China thing, as you said, I believe, right? Like you build up so much credibility with your base that you can kind of get away with things that a more kind of like explicitly moderate candidate couldn't, right? And I think that Harper did this on a number of occasions, right? I remember somebody once telling me about this with Harper, where it's like. When Harper did something that was like wrong, you know, quote unquote wrong from a sort of conservative perspective, when he did something that was sort of against the kind of the ideological mission of his party, you could always have faith that he at least knew he was doing something wrong, right? Like that deep in his core, he kind of sensed that he was making a compromise. Whereas with a politician like, you know, uh, uh, O'Toole, you know, compromise was basically just all he was. Like that was what he existed to do, was to do and say whatever it took to just become popular. So I do think that, uh, yeah, you're probably not wrong about that. I do, though, think, though, like, I wonder, you know, what will be offensive about Polyevra? Like, what will be the kind of the quote-unquote albatross hanging around his neck that he will have to moderate and have to back down from and have to apologize for? That, to me, is, is somewhat unclear because, you know, traditionally the way that that kind of dynamic has been understood in Canadian politics is that the conservative leader has to apologize or atone for his social conservatism of the past. You know, he has to apologize for the time he opposed same-sex marriage or opposed abortion or, or whatever. Paul Ever, as far as I know, doesn't have that track record. And although he does have a track record, you know, of, of, uh, of you know, opposing vaccine uh, mandates and lockdowns and that kind of stuff, I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the most front-of-mind issue you know, hopefully the, the pandemic and all of its associated stuff will be sort of long forgotten by 2025. So I don't know if necessarily like we're still going to be expecting our politicians to kind of relitigate all of that and apologize for that and the positions they took on lockdowns in 2020 or whatever. So uh, that being said, like what will be the issues that he will be forced to, to kind of compromise on in order to sort of uh, comfort the anxieties of sort of skittish middle class voters. Like, is it going to be stuff like the Bitcoin or the World Economic Forum or defunding the CBC? Like, these strike me as just like incredibly marginal issues that matter a lot to like the hardcore conservatives, but I think your average voter could care less one way or another. And again, like to draw the Trump analogy, I think that Trump had a lot of like really kind of loony positions on a lot of things. You know, he dabbled with all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories and stuff, but he ultimately wasn't held accountable for it when he was elected, just because when push came to shove, people just cared less about those things than they did about some of the other stuff. Right. And so I think that the gamble would be that Pierre's promise to, you know, make life more affordable, to open up sort of consumer options and deregulate the economy and lower taxes will ultimately be the stuff that people are more sort of animated by and will be more willing to kind of give a 
bored sort of wave of the hand to some of this other kind of, you know, quote unquote crackpot stuff that I think the liberals might think of as being more of a liability than I think it ultimately will be. Well, JJ, we promised our listeners rank punditry, and I, I think we delivered. Uh, JJ McCullough, I want to thank you for joining us uh, once again at Hub Dialogues. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening. <laughs>